Many Americans know Calypso as something like this. I know everybody thinks of the party music, but actually, in Trinidad, Calypso is a social commentary. Like this song from 2011 Carnival Monarch, Karina Shea. Folks are writing and singing about the state of the country, about taxes about, you know, and it's it's rooted in the African tradition of that time of, of slavery, even of speaking back to power. Lauren K. Elaine says it's these Calypso roots that tie her poetry so closely to what's going on in the world around her. For me, what it means to sit down and to put pen to paper began for me as a way to have a conversation with something larger, uh, with something that was important, not just to me, but for those around me and the society I was in. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, making art of the places we're from, the places we live, and the places we've left behind. Lauren K. Elaine lived the first part of her life in Trinidad and Tobago, and then moved to America at 18, and has been there since. Her poems explore what it's like to have one foot in Trinidad and one in America. Home, she says, is her poetry. Lauren K. Elaine is an English professor at James Madison University, and executive director of the Furious Flower Poetry Center there. She's been named an outstanding faculty member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. Lauren, you've said your first poetic home was in Calypso music. You talk about how writing for Calypso helped you understand in poetry form how to address political issues. I think for me, the, the idea of like the self and the world is is always together in the poems, right? Like what am what am I wrestling with and how does it fit into this larger conversation? So I, I guess that's where I saw it. So that when I got to graduate school and there's discussion of like what is political poetry and this, should the poem be political, it seemed like such a foreign, literally foreign argument to me because of course, of course it is. My first writing was about the political, and it felt to me like a departure not to be political. And so bringing that back and sort of harnessing that Calypso sensibility in the writing allowed me to open back those doors and to really engage in that way. You came to America at age 18 after having spent your entire life in Trinidad, for people less familiar with it, describe just a little bit Trinidad. Oh, my goodness. Describe Trinidad. Trinidad is the southernmost island in the Caribbean, um, and it's actually Trinidad and Tobago. The Brits hitched us back in the 1800s. Um, so we're a two-island nation and of just over a million people. I grew up in central Trinidad, which is the plains. It's flat. It was sugarcane country. So I grew up in a village surrounded by sugarcane. We were very mobile as a family, right? And my mother always loved the ocean. And so our pilgrimages to the various shores, the various coasts um, were frequent and wonderful. That love of water and that familiarity with water is central to your very political poem, Variations in Blue. This poem was prompted by a conversation about swimming that you had with the poet Frank X. Walker. What had he said that surprised you? Well, yes, I was talking with Frank, who is a wonderful poet, poet laureate of Kentucky, and a friend. And he just mentioned, I don't know how to swim. And I I sort of clutched my pearls and gasped, right? Like, what? And then he said very somberly, there were no pools for Black folk when I was coming up. And coming from an island where everyone is is of color, Black and other, 
and an island, right, surrounded by water. We learned to swim early. We That was a part of us. I, it, it felt unimaginable to me. Would you read Variations in Blue for me? Absolutely. Variations in Blue for Frank X. Walker. In Sleep's 3D Theater, Home, a green island surrounded by the blue of ocean. Zoom to the heart, see the Kuva swimming pool filled with us, black children shrieking our joy in a haze of sun. Our lifeguard, Rodney, his skin flawless and gleaming, black as fresh oil, his strut along the pool's edge, his swoon-worthy smile. Daddy, a beach ball-bellied Poseidon, droplets diamonding his afro, my brother hollering as he jumps into his bright blue fear, his return to air gasping and triumphant. And there, the girl I was, dumpling thick and sun-brown, stripped down to the red two-piece suit my mother had made by hand, afloat in the blue bed of water, the blue sky beaming above. When I wake up, I'm in America, where Dorothy Dandridge once emptied a pool with her pinky, and in Texas, a black girl's body draped in its hopeful, tasseled bikini struck earth instead of water, a policeman's blue-clad knees pinning her back, her indigo wail a siren. I want this to be a dream, but I'm awake and in this place where the only blue named home is a song and we are meant to sink, to sputter, to drown. When I first read this, it's a magnificent poem, and I loved the imagery of your family members in the pool. And I, of course, recall the hideous video that you described toward the end of the young girl who was simply trying to swim in a local pool when she was tackled Mm -hmm. to the ground very horrifically by a police officer. Yes, absolutely. Um, And it's so interesting what summons a poem, because I had seen that video, I'd written that, I had so many false starts of like how to enter what had clearly moved something in me in language. And then this conversation with Frank happens and they collapse together, right? Um, the bikini and the bikini and the, the the anticipation that I knew, I felt every time I knew we were going to the beach, we're going to the pool and how that has such a different landing literally of like jumping in the pool versus being slammed to the ground, right? Um, and so that's the alchemy of the poem, right? Do you ever feel that you need to be summonsing your blackness in America versus your blackness growing up in Trinidad? Absolutely. And I think that it's absolutely a different, I don't even want to say upbringing, but psychic world that is created when you grow up in a place where everyone you know is black or of color, as we say here, because we are East Indians in Trinidad. There's, you know, we're very racially diverse, but white folks are like 2%, right? So your garbage man, your teacher, your president, your prime minister, your ministers, of everybody looks like you in some form or another. And I think that that fosters a different space internally. And I do think that coming to America with its legacy and the difficulty of its history, which we share, slavery happened in the Caribbean, but the African-American experience is distinct from the Caribbean experience, the Trinidadian experience. And I look Black, I look African-American and um, am treated as such in many ways and instances that I for a long time did not understand, (laughs) Um, which both worked and didn't work, right? I I think sometimes back of instances when I was in college, I was like, oh, I think that person was being racist, but I just thought they were dumb, right? (laughs) I didn't understand, but also sometimes I didn't understand I was supposed to know my place. And sometimes that's dangerous. Like I am with friends who are like, you can't go to this part of the country. You don't wander into these spaces as a Black person, which... I have no sense of, right? It is a different sensibility. And I think that one of the the 
gifts or insights of being an immigrant who is Black um, from that upbringing, that 18 years of being a Black girl in a Black space, going to all-girls schools where all of all of us were Black girls um, and expected to do amazing things because I had the privilege to go to really great schools. Um, and then coming to America where the expectations and the uh, what it means to be a Black person and a Black woman, a Black girl is so reduced and, and limited. And to to have both of those experiences is, is an interesting and unique perspective. And it's one that I think is always in the poems for me. I love your poem, For My Brothers, about seeing your own brother as he grew up freely in Trinidad, when did you begin working on For My Brother, For My Brothers? Um, for My Brothers um, is one of is the first things I started to write after Trayvon Martin's murder, which I think was very impactful for me as it was, I think, the first sort of social civic movement of Black folks that happened while I was in the States and simultaneously conscious of America's history, which was not something I arrived to America with, right? I got the milk and honey, Golden Gates uh, sort of version. Um, and and I, for a long time, couldn't figure out what, what that pang was that felt so deep and visceral um, and there was, I forget which one of the photos where just, you know, he doesn't look at all like my brother, but in a slate of eye and memory and wistfulness and 3AMness, I was just like, oh my God, that could be Ray. And then the whole circumstance of it, of walking somewhere, of being sassy, but it took a long time for it to sort of come together. So I didn't finish it until 2021. Um, but that sometimes poems are like that. Sometimes you have to grow to meet the poem. Please read it for me. Absolutely. Um, the title is For My Brothers, and the S on the end is uh, parenthesized for my brother, for my brothers. And this is, you know, for Trayvon Martin. My brother was a dark-skinned boy with a sweet tooth, a smart mouth, and a wicked thirst. At 17, when I left him for America, his voice was static with approaching adulthood. He ate everything in the house, grew what felt like an inch a day, and wore his favorite shirt until mom disappeared it. Tonight, I am grateful he slaked his thirst in another country, far from this place where a black boy's being calls like crosshairs to conscienceless men with guns and conviction. I remember my brother's ashy knees and legs, how many errands he ran on them, up and down roads belonging to no one and everyone. And I'm grateful he was a boy in a country of black boys in the time of walks to the store on Auntie Marge's corner to buy contraband sweeties and sweet drinks with change snuck from mom's handbag or dad's wallet, how that was a black boy's biggest transgression and so far from fatal it feels an un-American dream. I have chills. <laughs> And it's such a powerful poem, especially because you related so strongly to your own brother. There's another way that you look at having half your life in Trinidad and half your life in America through another poem that's called Nothing to Declare about traveling home and then traveling back again, which is also home. Home is, is such a fraught concept, right? Like, what do we make home? Who do we call home? What landscapes are home to us? Home is a feeling, home is a fact, right? Where you were born, where you grew up. It's it's just endlessly fascinating to me. And again, in terms of leaving home at 18, literally in turn, 18 in June and left home in July, right? And so I was a child in Trinidad. And there is all the nostalgia and imperfect recollection and lack of understanding and context of childhood that happened in that place. So I annoy everybody because I say I'm going home and I mean Trinidad. And when I'm in Trinidad, I'm like, I'm going home. And they're like, well, pick. And I'm like, that's not how that works. <laughs> 
Would you read the poem, Nothing to Declare? Nothing to Declare. There is no name for what rises in you as you enter the dim world of the taxi and wheel through the night, escorted by smooth jazz and a battalion of streetlights. At the airport, you heave the bags you have stuffed to the limits of carriage and check them in. You have no trouble knowing what to do with your empty hands. At security, the usual stripping. You surrender your body to the scan, the searching sweep, as if what is dangerous is not what cannot be so easily detected. You comply. At the gate, grateful to be early, you sit with your books, plug into devices that tether you to this place you're meant to be leaving, that crowd out thoughts of arrival and its bittersweet complications. You're going home or just visiting, someone will ask, and you never know how you will answer. You know the bones of your mother's brown arms will wind around you. Her breath against your neck will baptize you again in names you have no one to call you in the other place you belong to. You know the waiting untended in you will surge toward her, and you know something else will sink, sulk itself into a familiar, necessary sleep. You know yourself now, only as the ocean knows this island, always pulling away, always, always returning. Oh, I so love that line. Your mother's breath will baptize you with the names that you have no one to call you in this other land. You are, of course, a celebrated poet, but also the director of the Furious Flower Poetry Center at James Madison University, when will be your next gala gathering of the greatest Black poets in America? <laughs> I am so fortunate to have become the executive director in June of 2022, um, taking over from our founder, Dr. Joanne Gabin, the visionary who created Fierce Flower, first as a, an idea celebration of Gwendolyn Brooks, and that evolved in 2005 into a brick-and-mortar center that is the nation's first academic center dedicated to Black poetry. And what that means is our, our tagline, you know, celebrate, educate, preserve. That is my mammoth task as I prepare for the 2024 Furious Flower Conference in September 2024. No one better to do it. Lauren Elaine, this has been such an honor for me. Thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. Appreciate it. Lauren K. Elaine is an English professor and executive director of the Furious Flower Poetry Center at James Madison University. She's been named an outstanding faculty member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. Her most recent poetry collections are Difficult Fruit and Honeyfish. Alexis Arthurs grew up in a New York City neighborhood that was filled with other Caribbean immigrants and diaspora. As an adult, she moved to the Midwest and was looking for a way to feel closer to her cultural home. That's when her award-winning short story collection, How to Love a Jamaican, was born. Arthurs is an English professor at George Mason University. Alexia, you moved at age 12 from Jamaica to New York City and remember feeling excited about it, but have later been able to see really how traumatic immigration is for all of us. You call it living in the diaspora. What is diaspora living to you? You know, I think I, so I grew up in the diaspora, meaning that I grew up in in parts of Brooklyn, you know, that the people who lived there were from the Caribbean. And those were my friends in school. Those were the people who I knew at church. And I took that for granted. It wasn't until I moved to the Midwest for graduate school. I moved to Iowa. It wasn't until I moved there that I realized the beauty of my experience in New York. The fact that a lot of my cultural touch points I was able to carry with me from the Caribbean to New York because I lived in the diaspora. And I haven't lived in New York since, you know, it's been over a decade. 
And it's an experience that I still miss. Tell me about that neighborhood in New York where so many relatives from Jamaica and friends and schoolmates all were there. What did you have as far as the Jamaican diaspora there? We had the culture. We had Jamaican restaurants. We had markets that sold the kinds of foods that we ate on a daily basis. Like our our variety of of spinach is called Kalaloo. And I haven't been able to find fresh Kalaloo outside of New York. Certain fruits or vegetables, I just haven't been able to find them outside of New York. Well, you know, the first time you left New York was for Iowa. I'm sure the culture shock and the differences were greatest then. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, it was, you know, it was a bit of a, of a cultural shock. <laughs> so when I lived in New York, I didn't introduce myself to people as being Caribbean. But when I moved to the Midwest... When people asked where I was from, I said I was from the Caribbean. It was strange because in New York, there's so many of us, but going to Iowa, there's so few of us that it felt like my identity, I think I held, I held my identity closer to me and I found myself cooking more Jamaican foods. You know, it was in Iowa that I also wrote my book a book of short stories about Jamaicans. And I think a part of that, a part of my need to be closer to my to my cultural roots was because I was farther away. You said you started your award-winning book of short stories there. It's called How to Love a Jamaican. Where does the title come from? <laughs> you know, people always ask me that. The title is... From one of the, it's actually from a line of dialogue in the title story in which a man is explaining to another man um, how to love a Jamaican man. He was essentially saying, you know, we need good food, we need good comfort from our wives. It's very gendered and misogynistic. Um, I think that that Jamaican culture has a lot to contend with in terms of its hyper-masculine cultural aspect. And that line of dialogue was interested in that. So I pulled it out of that line of dialogue and it, it spoke to the entire collection because the collection is so interested in relations between Jamaicans, whether it's familial or romantic, you know, or or friendship. Um, the collection, to me, is so interested in what it means to be close to someone. As you wrote these short stories over the years, far apart from your Caribbean neighborhood in New York City or from the Jamaica where you were born, did you find your perspective was shifting on how you wrote about your Caribbean identity or memories or experiences? Hmm. I do think that that distance fed my imagination in really rich ways. If I, I think if I had lived in New York or if I had been closer to New York in terms of um, distance, I don't, I don't know that I would have been able to really reflect as deeply as I, as I did. I think it's hard for me and for a lot of writers to write about something if we're too if we're too close to it. It did help me to to write more honestly about my and my family's experiences. Do you have the book with you? Would you be willing to read from one of your stories in the collection? Sure. So I'm going to read from a story called On Shelf. So when I was writing the collection, most of it is set in New York or or in Jamaica, but I do have a couple stories that are set in the Midwest, and that happened because I was so inspired and so influenced by the question of what it means to be a Jamaican who lives outside of the diaspora, who lives in the Midwest. So the story I'm going to read from is, is about a a character who lives in the Midwest and she 
she's over 40 and she really wants to get married and have children. And she she reconnects with a Jamaican man who she knew in Jamaica, who also lives in the U.S. And he is kind of awful, but she makes it work. And their shared cultural roots is important to her. He would wrap one arm around her and they would talk about life back home, about people they both knew, about the state of the country, about their mothers who were still making life in Jamaica. They would laugh at so-and-so foolish person, at their younger selves, at the ignorance and the arrogance and the hilarity of Jamaicans. Sometimes it seemed that he'd saved her from the loneliness of the Midwest. She never felt more connected to him than when they were talking about Jamaica. Whatever happened to so-and-so her person, she might ask. And he would explain that the person was not married and living in Canada or moved to another parish or the same as they remembered him. Life in Jamaica is sweet, Glenroy would say, would always say, and Doreen would agree because it was true. They were of the same generation the ones who had left the Caribbean as adults for better lives, and they would spend the rest of their years making comparisons, making complaints. But when they thought about it, when they really considered it, every road led to America. They would build retirement homes in Jamaica. So that's from the story called On Shelf. Oh, you really capture her predicament. And her need for that shared identity, though, as you said, he's really awful, but she makes it work. What else do you have coming up? I am working now on a novel that is in some ways a continuation of my short story collection. It is interested in Jamaicanness. So I think of Jamaica as, as a country that has a lot of global influence, when you think of Bob Marley, when you think of sports, you know, in a Western gaze, Jamaica has a lot of global influence. So the novel is interested in that. It's interested in unpacking some of the stereotypes that people believe to be true about Jamaican culture. Um, I wish I could say more about the novel, but, you know, that's, that's all I can share right now. Well, Alexia Arthurs, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Thank you for having me. Alexis Arthurs is an English professor at George Mason University and the author of How to Love a Jamaican. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. The themes of coming-of-age stories are universal. Independence, disillusionment, purpose, power. But it's the particulars that make a story stick with us, whether it's Dickens' England or Baldwin's Harlem. Maggie Marangoni's novel, Across the Blue Ridge Mountains, roots coming-of-age in her adopted home, the Appalachian communities of Shenandoah. Marin Joni is an English professor at Blue Ridge Community College. Maggie, your new novel, Across the Blue Ridge Mountains, begins in 1918 when the main character, Mary, is 15 years old. Tell me about Mary and her journey. Yeah, Mary is uh, born into a small town uh, of Elkton, Virginia. And, you know, she's born into a time period that is seeing so much tumultuous change. Uh, the issues with World War I, uh, women's rights, rapid industrialization. And uh, so that is kind of the backdrop to Mary's own very personal story as she tries to find footing for herself and her life. How would you say Mary's story, as both an outsider and someone who is deeply rooted in the Shenandoah Valley, how would you say her story is like your own? You know, um, the idea of uh, being an outsider 
is certainly, you know, as a transplant from New York, uh, I'm definitely an outsider to some degree. And Mary's sense of being an outsider comes more, I think, inherently from her mother's rejection, and then also because she feels so different and out of step and does not resonate in her sense of time and place. You know, she doesn't want to be a mother. She doesn't want to marry the preacher's son. She kind of has these ideas of adventure. She likes being um, outdoors. And uh, for 1918, that could be a little bit difficult when you're expected... um, to be a wife and mother and and to find joy and happiness there. So at a very young age, she runs off with a guy who turns out to be a grifter. Yeah. And then ultimately becomes caught up in the story that's very real in terms of history, though this is a novel, of the families that were forcibly removed to create Shenandoah National Park. Yes, she does run off and uh, with this grifter who takes her to the West Virginia cold fields. And then her father, who is an influential man, hires people to bring her back. Uh, and he places her with a mountain family so she'll be safe, you know, and protected, but will not be, uh, how do we say, aggravating um, her mother, maybe, due to her that her being a scandal. And ultimately, from living with this mountain family up in the Shenandoah National, well, what becomes the Shenandoah National Park, she witnesses firsthand the removals of over a thousand families, uh, her own family um, included, because by at that point, she's lived up there, you know, maybe 20, 30 years and has had children up there. Why were families removed from Shenandoah National Park? Well, the powers that be wanted to create a park on the East Coast, and it, it is beautiful, but the fact that there were a thousand families was, was downplayed. Uh, so they had to be removed to make way for, for the park. What was your own experience with the Blue Ridge Mountains before you wrote this novel? You know, I I fell in love with the Blue Ridge Mountains uh, of Virginia when I first started working in Washington, D.C. for for respite and relaxation. I'd come into the Shenandoah National Park, and I did a lot of hiking, and I began to learn about the people who lived in the park, and I got very interested in Appalachian culture, uh, so much so that I ended up buying a small little mountain farm um, in Vesuvius, Virginia. As soon as I could, I, I moved down there in my, I guess it would be my mid to late 20s and lived way up in the mountains. Was there any culture shock when you first moved down from the north? Well, yes. Um, you know, I think <laughs> I'm kind of glad uh I had the impulsivity of youth because I didn't think about any all these bigger implications uh, of what it would be like to leave family, friend, and a, friends in a metropolitan area and move to a very, very, very rural environment. <laughs> but, you know, this was, when did I move down? I think it was 1991. And I had a, a very interesting experience. Uh, the day I, I drove down here, I had pulled off in a a small town to, you know, get some supplies like milk and bread and stuff before I headed up the mountain to my house. And I wrote a check at this little tiny um, convenience store. And the, the man looked at my license and he looked at me and he said, you know, the only good Yankee is a dead Yankee. And Mm. I was like, oh, what have I done? And where have I moved? You know, he was kind of an outlier because uh, I, I was welcomed and embraced by the com- community, and I feel very blessed by that. But I think, uh, you know, still in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, I, I ran into that distrust of Northerners still, you know, from time to time. Yeah, and when you think about it, you know, people who are living in sort of a different world, Right. Even to a, a certain degree, especially at, in that time period, and I think it speaks to where I even live uh, today, when you live in very, very rural communities, a lot of time, a lot of people don't move in or out. It can stay very static. What stayed with you when you interviewed with 
actual descendants of families who've been removed from the park? I think the sense of home, the the connection to land and family, um, and how much it meant to them, and that there can be such a connection to place, you know, to live in a house for generations and, and to be tied to that land uh, is really significant. And then, of course, it's... Uh, the flip side of that is still to this day the family and historical trauma that uh, these families and these descendants still hold about being um, forcibly removed. Uh, and then I think also being maligned so, so badly, you know, in, by the press and stereotypes. The anger persists? Yes. Um, you know, I know quite a few local descendants who, you know, they can't tell me, you know, they say things like they can't tell me not to hunt on my, you know, great grandfather's property. That was our land. And, you know, that that sense of that it was somehow stolen, I guess, to a certain degree. I think it dissipates over time. uh, But but I don't think there's been enough distance yet because we haven't even reached the hundred year mark. I'd love for you to read a selection from the novel. Sure. I'll, uh, I'm going to just read um, the, the first paragraph, which kind of, I think, sets the stage for, for what happens. So Elkton, Virginia, the Shenandoah Valley at the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains, 1918. I met Halsam at court days in Harrisonburg, Virginia, the autumn of the year that I turned 15. And in some ways, he was more influential on my life than my parents because I didn't listen to them. Instead, I chose to follow Halsam across the Alleghenies in the pitch black of a no-moon night, traveling west along Swift Run Gap. This was the same road my parents and I were now bumping along on that September day when I was still blameless. I regarded maple, oak, beech, and dogwood holding on to some of their green leaves, the wild pink Virginia roses still spilling forth along the fence lines, and the second bloom of honeysuckle dripping yellow, orange, and white. Like me, they were on the edge of change. I love your writing style. It's observant and taut and moves along deftly. Well, thank you. When you first came from New York, then to D.C., and then took these nature trips after driving a couple hours outside of D.C. to these places, you would often see on your hikes remnants of the houses and farms and homesteads that once were but no longer were. Yes, sometimes you'll find old foundations, uh, old rusted metal like bed frames and car parts, things like um, apple orchards that, of course, would not be native, you know, occasionally even um, domestic flowers like irises, which would kind of be an indication that there was an old homestead close by. It's poignant, isn't it? Very, very much so. Um, I was hiking probably in late fall, and uh, I found an old unmarked cemetery. So if you hadn't been off trail, you know, it was just those those stones that kind of stick up. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, who were these people? What were their lives? You know, who's buried here? Um, It's haunting to me. It's haunting. What's next for you? I'm working on a story uh, that's kind of based in the in the 1970s in Elkton, Virginia. Uh, that's got a little more contemporary feel to it, but I think deals with kind of some of this still displacement fallout and people still trying to find their footing after losing a way of life. And then I'm also working on a short story collection of contemporary uh, fiction Appalachian experiences, if you will. Sounds wonderful. Well, Maggie Marangioni, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you for having me. Maggie Marangioni is a professor of American and Appalachian literature at Blue Ridge Community College. Her novel is Across the Blue Ridge Mountains. My next guest says his art is all about mixing, just like his identity. 
Solomon ECKJ grew up in Lagos, Nigeria, with a mix of languages and backgrounds all around him. Now an art professor at Norfolk State University, ECKJ makes art that grapples with the different parts of who he is. Art is uh, my voice. It is how I remember things and it is how I record things, you know, maybe for the next generation or whoever cares to um, want to even think about or look at the things that I have recorded. Uh, So for me, uh, my everyday lived experience, my interactions with people, I find a way to incorporate all of those into my work of art. Um, My problem all the time is um, how to record all these, you know, experiences and all these interactions that are happening around me. Uh, So I just kind of do my best to create sketches, write notes, and then turn them into artworks at some point. You call yourself a contemporary African artist in diaspora. That's such an interesting phrase, right? African artist in diaspora. Yes, um, you know, I, I was born and raised in Lagos, Nigeria. My parents were born and raised in Edo State in Nigeria. They speak um, a language called the Otwa language. It is a subset of the Edo language from the Benin Kingdom. Um, so growing up in Lagos, I didn't speak that language. Um, I spoke the Yoruba language, which everybody around me in Lagos spoke. Uh, so I did not um, learn my native tongue. That was not the first language that I spoke. And when you grow up in, in a situation like that, in an environment like that, um, you cannot help but, you know, to um, imagine things in different languages. Uh, I would uh, often listen to people speak to me about anything. And in my mind, I would repeat what they've just said in a different language. And um, traditionally or uh, naturally, I want to illustrate that as well. So what makes me an African artist in diaspora is the fact that my Africanness, my African consciousness always stays with me. And I'm constantly viewing and interpreting the world through this lens because that's who I am. That's um, my worldview. And that's how I meet the world every day. Um, And anybody who is recording whatever is happening right now, you know, from their perspective or even others' perspective is a contemporary artist. So if you may, you can call me um, a traveling artist artist because I'm an African artist Mm -hmm. who is in a different part of the world trying to see the world through the lenses that that I have been handed. When did you come to America? Oh, that's it's been a while. Um, 1998. I wonder if coming to America changed your art. I mean, if it threw you into a period of disarray for a while. Initially, it was slightly confusing um, because, you know, I had to try to figure out how I fit into this new uh, world and and how to interpret and how to communicate in this new world. Um, But something happened that really helped me, you know, along this journey. And and it was um, taking a class with... um, my former professor, um, Professor Ken Daly, uh, who introduced me to the works of Joseph Campbell. And um, I got fascinated by visions of dreams and the whole notion of mythology, the whole notion that we are all um, heroes in a journey. And, And that really helped because I started to look for similar mythologies in all cultures. And and then I realized that, you know, everybody goes through a journey, right? I just have to kind of understand my journey and, um, and and figure out a way to succeed, you know, in my quest. Um, so that 
period was a formative period for me. It was a period when I had to think about the symbolism in my work and think about how to preserve them, but also begin to include other symbolic references from my new community. But then I got comfortable with the idea that all narratives are connected, you know, um, from one artwork to another, you really are telling the same story, but different versions of the same story. Um, and so that's what gave me peace in knowing that I can look at a subject, an issue, an experience here in America through an African lens and vice versa. And in, in essence, I think that's what being an American really is about. You know, you're able to pull from multiple sources to make your experience better. And, and that's been my um, joy in terms of um, being a contemporary artist. You are a mixed media artist, and you've said mixing things together helps you capture your own experience of mixing in Nigeria and other cultures. How do you see that culturally mixed experience showing up in your art? Well, um, as I said earlier, I grew up um, in Lagos, and in Lagos, um, the language is Yoruba language. Um, the Yorubas have a, 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 a pantheon of gods, um, lots and lots of deities. You know, there's a deity for virtually every human experience. You know, there's a deity for, for war, for creativity. There's a fertility goddess, and you just name it. And all these deities mm -hmm. sometimes have objects that are important you know, uh, important ceremonial objects, objects that are that are associated with them. So having this knowledge as a young artist or as a young boy, um, it, it changed my relationship with objects, with things. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, the god of war is Ogun. Um, in Yoruba mythology and cosmology, the god of war is Ogun. Anything that is um, metal, you know, iron, is is associated with this god. This god is believed to have a presence or to reside in anything that is a piece of metal. Um, so when, when I think about uh, a piece of metal or um, anything that is metallic, I'm not just thinking about that object from uh, its, um, its, its, its kind of material standpoint. I'm looking at it from its material standpoint. I'm also thinking about it as an object that has the power to connect the world of the living and the world of the ancestors. Um, and and that's, that's, I think, my source of joy when I'm walking, is that I'm looking at materials and how I can combine them from a compositional perspective, but also the meaning each material brings to the composition. So there are layers upon layers upon layers, you know, of meaning in my work. And that's what I find fascinating. And that's what I also believe is the, the African essence in my work. Your father was a Nigerian police officer who also loved Shakespeare. That's a fun mixture of interests. Tell me about his love of Shakespeare. Oh, yeah. Well, he told the stories. And then in my mind, I started to kind of like imagine those stories and animate those stories. I eventually used that. Um, my father passed about a decade ago, but he's a major inspiration to me as a man, you know, as an artist. Uh, I don't think he, he could draw, but he would offer suggestions and some amazing critiques. Um, as a young artist, I tend to want to say everything I want to say on one canvas. And I recall my father saying, it's a beautiful painting, but you don't have to pour all your ideas into this one canvas. 
it, it's it's a little overwhelming. Can you pace yourself? You know, and that's something that I remember up until now, and I even share with some of my students. Take your time. You don't have to say it all at once or today. It's still tomorrow. Well, I think we all owe a debt of gratitude to your father, his wisdom, and his love of Shakespeare. <laughs> Thank you. You know, my um, my practice as an artist um, is highly informed by my understanding of African art. And that same, you know, understanding is what I bring to uh, administering the fine arts program at Norfolk State. African art is always in motion. It's never static. You know, it is about creating, it's about engagement, and it's about interaction. And that's one of the things that I've been able to share with my colleagues and our students. In our region, the fine arts program at Norfolk State University is known for its community engagement and community collaborative uh, partnerships. And our program, it's much more successful because of its ability to engage the community, to, to give to the community, which is also something that is very, very, very important to that Yoruba worldview, that there is a lot more joy in giving, you know, sometimes than in receiving. Solomon ECKJ, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Thank you very much, Sarah, for inviting me. Solomon ECKJ is an art professor at Norfolk State University. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Custo are interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.